0: diving into foundations, and uh, in the New Testament church, I believe we have been given a great, great heritage that's been passed on to us by faithful men and faithful women of God who left us a firm foundation. I'm thankful that uh, that we uh, don't have to uh, build this on our own, but there is a firm foundation that has already been set, and we can never forget where we have come from, or else we will never be able to get to where God wants us to go. Amen? At the 21st century Christians, we need to know, without a doubt, that the things that we believe, it's not just man's idea, it's not just some idea that pastor's coming up with, but this is the foundational truth that comes directly from the Word of God. And uh, so we want to dive into these topics over these next couple of Wednesday night Bible studies that I am deeming the foundations, these things that uh, really we ought to have a firm grasp of or understanding of. And last Wednesday night, we covered the Holy Scripture, the Bible, and uh, looked at uh, what the Bible is and why we ought to believe it, why it ought to be something that we hold tight to, and um, and the the truth of what God's word can do in our life, and so we dove into that last Wednesday night. Uh, tonight we are discussing again the foundations of our belief, and this comes to us from the Apostles' Doctrine. I preach an apostolic dop- an apostolic doctrine. The same doctrine that the apostles preached, the same one that they received directly from Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ taught himself. That is, uh, that is our goal to be restorationist in that sense. I don't want to just build upon church tradition uh, or teach just from church tradition, but I want to uh, restore back to what the apostles taught, what they believed, what they received from God and allow that to be my foundation for my belief. And so, um, I, some of what we teach tonight, there may be someone here who you see and, uh, you hear this and, uh, perhaps it's, it sounds curious to you or, uh, maybe you, it's, it's new to you. And, uh, I just want to encourage you tonight just to, um, just to have an open mind and to receive this. And if this is something that you say, I don't know, um, you know, everything that you're teaching that, uh, that I agree with it all, that I just want to encourage you to study the Word, study the word of God. Uh, the word says to study to show thyself approved and, uh, we can, uh, we can continue, uh, to study this together as well. So I just want to encourage you, uh, tonight as we open this, uh, Bible study up to have an open mind and, uh, just to hear, uh, from the word of God what, um, what it's speaking to us. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that it says, they are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That the church today, even today, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That Jesus is the one That is the most foundational part of everything that we do. He is the chief cornerstone. But the apostles, the prophets, they are the ones that we receive the word of God through their writings. uh, That are passed down to us. They are the ones who wrote the word of God. And so we receive the foundational truths from them. And then in Acts 2.42... It tells us, this is the birth of the church, the birth of the New Testament church. And it tells us what they did from the very beginning. It says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. And so that was the foundation of what they did, as they built everything upon the apostles' doctrine, that which they had received from Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So tonight, we are looking here at our second foundation stone, which is the oneness of God. And so, we're going to go back to a scripture that is perhaps the most pivotal scripture in all of the Bible, uh, or w- one of the most foundational scriptures in, in all of the Bible. That is in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, where it says, "Hear, O Israel." The Lord our God is one Lord. This verse is called the Shema. It's what the Jewish people call it. It's the most important part of their daily prayers. This is something that, that they recite on a daily basis. Uh, and, and in fact, they're commanded to recite this twice daily. Once in the morning and once at night. They are commanded to teach this to their children. They print this on small scrolls that they place inside of a mezuzah that they put on the doorposts of their houses. It's even traditional in uh traditional for the Jews to say the Shema as their last words. If, uh, if somebody is, is passing, this is something that they want to be the last thing that would come from their mouth would hear would be hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. Or in Hebrew it would be Shema Yisrael Adonai Eleheno, Adonai Ehad. That is the Shema. This this phrase or this this uh, scripture that's telling us of the oneness of God, of the singularity of God. This is speaking of God is not just the only God, although it does say that that God is the only God, there is no other God, but also that God Himself is. One, that He is one. In His essence, God is one. The revelation of one God is the most powerful revelation in Scripture. Because if there is only one God, then He deserves my total allegiance. Jesus called this the greatest commandment when He was quoting the law. It's in Mark chapter 12 verses 29 and 30, that Jesus answered uh, was answering this question of which is the greatest. And he said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. and So if this is true, that God is one, and it's not just that there is only one God, but that God himself is one. It tells us in uh, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, I am the Lord. There is none else. There is no other God beside me. If this is the truth, if this is what scripture teaches us, then uh, how do we reconcile that with the doctrine of the Trinity? This is a Question that I do want to dive into tonight: uh, What what is the Trinity? What is an understanding of of this this doctrine that is so common within the Christian uh, within Christianity today? And the Trinity, if you understand what this doctrine is, is speaking of one God that is three separate, co equal, co eternal persons. And so how how does the understanding of the uh I should say the Jewish understanding, the, the Shema, how does that reconcile with this doctrine that is so common with the with churches today, with Christianity today in this doctrine of the Trinity? When it says, I am the Lord, there's none else, there is no other God beside me, that hero is or the Lord our God is one Lord. How does that coincide with this doctrine, which states that there is one God, but that he is made up of three separate and three distinct persons? And so we're going to dive into that tonight. And I can tell you um, that from the Jewish perspective of God, which I believe is, is a very good perspective to come from, for they... Uh, at least, at least with a, an understanding of who God is, because, uh, they are the ones who God revealed himself to. They were the people of God from the very beginning, uh, or at least from the time of Abraham, that they had been called out from all of the other people, that God revealed himself to Abraham, that God revealed himself to Isaac and Jacob, that God revealed himself to Moses, and, and, and in that we see the revelation of God. And their understanding of who God was as the one God uh, that same one God that they served and that was revealed to them and and others of the Jewish faith uh, is the same God that we see in the New Testament. It's not some different God that comes onto the scene. It's not some different uh, some different demigod or some other. Uh, some other God that would step onto the scene in, in the New Testament, but it is—it's the same God that that the Jews served that we see then revealed in the New Testament and the new covenant that they would be under. So, so is this? Uh, so, so here's here's what we're going to dive into is is a, a distinction between a oneness view of God and a trinitarian view of God because there is a a difference. And a distinction between these two beliefs and these doctrines. And whether or not this is an important distinction is uh, also, I guess, uh, up for debate. It's a question that perhaps we should ask. Well, does it really even matter? And we'll get to that as well at the end. But let's let's first, let's dive into the development of the Trinitarian doctrine and its influences. I, uh, I should have brought up here... My stack of, of books that I've been reading, um, if I would have brought it, it would go from here to up here. It's, um, I haven't read them all yet, but I've been I've been nose deep in these for quite a while now and uh, just trying to get an understanding of the development of the Trinitarian doctrine or development really of Christian doctrine uh, over time. And and there have been some some very insightful insightful books that I've been reading. And one of these, um, one that I had actually read quite some time ago, uh, but uh, again, dove into just a little bit by Dr. David Bernard. It's in his book, A History of Christian Doctrine, um, which is a three-volume book. This, this is in volume one, going back to the beginning. He speaks about the pagan influences. That were in the early church and how they affected Christian doctrine. So this, we're speaking of pagan influences in the early church. Uh, we are speaking the apostolic age. Um, uh, that's what it'd be called, but this is when you talk of the apostolic age, we're not talking of the apostles, the ones in, 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 in the Bible, but rather the first and second centuries, uh, all the way up to the, the third century. Uh, those, those first three centuries of the church's existence. And so in that age, in the apostolic age, uh, we see a lot of influence from some external factors that came into the church. And so I'm going to just read some sections here from this book by Dr. Bernard. He says, in discussing the development of doctrine particularly the emergence of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, it's helpful to examine pagan influences. That originally there was a sharp conflict between Christianity and all forms of paganism. The primary reason was the exclusive claims of Christianity. Christians said they served the only true God. They proclaimed that Jesus is the true God, manifest in flesh, the only Lord, the only Savior, and that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. By contrast, the other major religions of the Roman Empire, Greek paganism, Roman paganism, various Middle Eastern religions, were based on polytheism. Polytheism would be the belief in many gods. He said. It goes on to say, the Romans allowed each nation in the empire to worship its own gods as long as no one interfered with the worship of others. As a matter of civic duty and loyalty to the empire, everybody had to participate in the worship of the Roman deities. Eventually, the Romans promoted worship of the emperor as a means of pledging allegiance to the empire. This is something that, as... as uh Uh, Those polytheistic religions, uh, they, uh, having served a pantheon of gods, were willing to do, they were willing to begin to serve and to to worship the emperor of the Roman Empire. And so, he goes on to say, he goes on to to say here, he says, uh, they were not only seen as religious heretics. Here he's speaking of the Jews and the Christians because they were the only ones uh, really, within the Roman Empire, who did not go along with this system of of just bringing on the pantheon of the Roman gods, bringing on the worship of the Roman emperor, uh, they were the ones who resisted this out of any of the other cultures. It was the Jewish people and then uh, later on the the Christians who really resisted this, and so he goes on to say they were not only seen as religious heretics but more importantly. As political subversives. Where they were a group of people. Who were trying to create political unrest. Society considered them intolerant. Because they refused to accept. Everyone else's religion as valid. The state viewed them as rebellious. For refusing to participate in the civic religion. They were supposed to confess Caesar as Lord. But the Christians. Reserved the title of Lord. For Jesus Christ alone. So. Christianity, in its very earliest days, was opposed to the fundamental religious, philosophical, and political structure of the Roman Empire in the ancient world. The empire persecuted Christians because they refused to practice the state religion and because they insisted on following a moral law that was higher than the laws of the state. The early Christians did not seek to overthrow government, but they held different, different values they lived a different lifestyle from the pagan neighbors, and their worldviews were incompatible. And so we'll end there uh, with uh with that portion of, of text. Uh but he's he's speaking here about how everybody else uh within the Roman Empire was uh, when that when the area was conquered, they would begin to worship the gods of the Romans. This was this is called Hellenism, uh was the, the Romans uh, when they would come in. Uh, Rather, the Greeks were the first ones to do this with Alexander the Great. And then the Romans afterwards, uh, we see the same thing that would happen, that they would bring on their culture into the conquered areas. And so the Jews and the Christians stood out from among them. Their viewpoint and their values were incompatible with the values of the Romans. Their viewpoint and their values and who they would serve as God did not mesh with the culture that was around them. So now we could get into the various ways into which their worldviews were incompatible and and how the world Roman world uh, was moral compared to or what their morals were compared to what the Christians' morals were. We could we could get into all that. We we could spend a lot of time on it. Um not going to necessarily go there. But I do want to focus on the religious views of the pagans who were surrounding them, and especially the abundance of religions who worshipped a triad or a trinity of gods. Because this was not something new for the Romans. This was not something new for the Greeks. But having a trinity of God or a triad of gods that you would serve extended all the way back to the earliest religions that we know of, and it spreads all throughout the religions of the world that we can, uh, that we know of today. And ba- really, Babylon was the originator of the Trinity. It began with Nimrod, Tammuz, and semi These were three gods that were served within the Babylonian Empire. You have the father, Which is the king? You have the son and the mother, which is, uh, or or the mother would be the queen. And as a result, from these three gods, these three primary gods within the Babylonian uh, religion, they began to influence all religions that would come after them, outside of, or with the exception of the Jew, the Jewish people. Basically, all ancient heathen religions developed their own trinity or triad of gods. The Babylonian symbol of the dove uh, would eventually appear for the mother goddess. Now this dove, you may represent that same symbol within the Christian beliefs. This became this became the representation of the Holy Spirit by the framers of the Nicene Creed in AD 325. But the, really the damage was already done. As, as current Catholic practice will reveal, Mary is in reality the third person. Uh, they, they really pray to, pray to Mary within the Catholic tradition. Uh, that's the queen of heaven. They, they pray to her. She's the one who uh, is, is the intermediary. Between God and man, they and and so you have even that that Queen Mother, and that's in fact one of the things that they call Mary within the Catholic um, tradition is the Queen Mother, and so they uh, almost almost every ancient religion you'll see that there on, on page two, these different triads of God, gods that uh, that they had, the Trinity in ancient religions. Arthur Weigel, I guess I had that quote on the first page, but Arthur Weigel, um, he himself is a Trinitarian, but he summed up the influence of ancient beliefs on the adoption of the Trinitarian doctrine by the Catholic Church uh, in, his, in his book, Paganism in Our Christianity. And he said in that book, he said, it must not be forgotten that Jesus Christ never mentioned such a phenomenon, speaking of the Trinity. Nowhere in the New Testament does the word trinity appear. The idea was only adopted by the church 300 years after the death of our Lord, and the origin of the conception is entirely pagan. So the ancient Egyptians, whose influence on early religious thought was profound, usually arranged their gods or goddesses in trinities. There was the trinity of Osiris, Isis, and Horus the trinity of Amun, Mut, and Kansu, the trinity of Num, Satis, and Anukis, and so forth. They had their trinities of gods. He then goes on to say in his book, he says, Belief in the three in one and one in three became a paramount doctrine of Christianity, though not without terrible riots and bloodshed. And so this is just to get an understanding. This was something that was developed uh, Post the time of the the apostles that we would read of in the early church, the first century church, something that developed, but as he says, it was developed with uh, not without terrible riots and bloodshed. There was a lot of uh, a lot of hurt and, and there was a lot of, of of battle and anguish that took place be, uh, in the development of this doctrine. He says today, a Christian thinker has no wish to be precise about it that is. They don't like to think too deeply about their view of God that's separated into three distinct persons, more especially since the definition is obviously pagan in origin, and it was not adopted by the church until nearly 300 years after Christ. That's from the words of Arthur Weigel. As I said, he himself is a Trinitarian, but uh, that's it's his um, studied view on on this. So this, as I mentioned, you have the uh, trinity in ancient religions, the, tri- the triad of Babylon, Nimrod, Temas, Semiaramis, triad of Egypt, you see them there, the triad of Greece, of Zeus, Apollo, and Athena, the triad of Rome, uh, Jupiter, Mars, Venus, while they had other gods that they served, these were uh, the three most important, the three that, um, that they would put together as, um, as their trinity of gods. Uh, you even had, if you go back to the Israelites, and uh, you read through the Old Testament, there was uh, much, of the, uh, much of the history of the Israelites was, in fact, not them serving God, but rather they were serving other gods. And uh, that's why the, the prophets would come in, and they would warn them of the destruction that would take place if they continued in this manner. But when they did that, they had three gods that they served. You had Baal, Tammuz, and Ashtaroth were the three gods of backslidden Israel. And then you have the triad of Catholicism, or the triad uh, of, of the Trinitarian doctrine, which is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so all of these had the first person, the second person, the third person, uh, the father, the son, and the, the queen, or the mother, or the dove, of this representation of the third. So the era of the early Christians, the prominent triad that was being worshipped was this triad that I mentioned of, of, um, of Rome, Jupiter, Mars, and Venus. And these are the gods who the Gentiles had worshipped prior to any conversion to Christianity that may have taken place. So as you have the early Christian church You have the Jewish people, but you also have Paul going into the Gentile nations, the Gentile areas, and you have all of these people who they grew up worshiping a multiplicity of gods, a trinity of gods, the Jupiter, Mars, and Venus. You have them coming into the church with that understanding. Now, they get the revelation of Jesus Christ. I believe that they had a revelation of Jesus Christ, that when they were baptized, uh, they were baptized in Jesus' name is what we see in scripture. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, from, from the early church that was started. We see Paul, uh, writing his letters and they are, uh, oneness in nature. They're speaking of the oneness of God. And, but, but I do want to go back. To what Doctor Bernard was saying in his book, when he was saying that uh, not long after the church started, there was pagan influence that began to come and creep its its way into the church, and this pagan influence uh, was was something that um, that took place from the culture around them, where you have this triad of gods that were that were served and their thought. Of, of, of their understanding of who God was or how God, um, how God was made up, they had those ideas that began to creep their way into the church. There is, I'm just going to read one more, um, one more passage here from Dr. Bernard in his book. He says, the situation changed completely with Emperor Constantine. So we go on, this is in uh, January of 313, so uh, not quite, but almost 300 years after the church had been established. We have Constantine, who was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, or not, I guess it wasn't Holy Roman yet, uh, but the, the Roman Empire, and he announced an edict called the Edict of Milan, and this changed the way that the Romans would deal with the Christians, prior to constantine and prior to this edict there was hatred there was a battle between the government and the christians they would throw them in jail they would kill them they nero evil emperor he set uh set the city on fire and blamed it on the jews or blamed it on the the christians and, and so you have all this persecution that's taking place you have uh, you have all these these awful things that are happening, but but when Constantine gets uh, gets in power, and it's uh, not right away, but uh, during his his time of his rule, in January three thirteen, he had this Edict of Milan that said that uh, we are no longer going to persecute the Christians. He said Christianity is spreading like wildfire. We can't stop it with persecution. Now, he himself, then in um, 324, uh, publicly embraced Christianity, and he himself began to promote it as the preferred religion. His successors even established Christianity as the official state religion. They banned paganism. And all that sounds really great. It sounds like revival is breaking out. Now, I wish that was the case. But the reality is that much of what happened was politically motivated. What Constantine really embraced was not true Christianity because the pagan Roman people didn't really convert to the worship of one God. Here's what happened. Most of them didn't mind abandoning their former religion because they never really thought of their former religion as the only way or their gods as the only gods. And for many of them, the fact that Christianity had withstood so much persecution and had growth in spite of it all, finally triumphed over everything else with this Edict of Milan, that was proof enough for them that the God of the Christians was superior to their old gods. So the problem was that in most cases, Christians, or people who are now calling themselves Christians, did not really undergo a genuine spiritual conversion. Instead of recognizing the fact that they aren't really serving god or they're not really uh, having an understanding a biblical understanding of who god is they simply translated their pagan ideas and practices into a christian context so while christianity seems to be victorious in this in this moment it actually suffers a really serious defeat and uh, will durant this uh this famous historian he said while Christianity converted the world, the world converted Christianity. And it displayed the natural paganism of mankind. I think it's a really powerful statement. And while Christianity was out there trying to convert the world, what ends up happening in this moment is that the world converted Christianity and it, it began to have its views and its um, its, its false ideas that Crept its way, or really made a, made an onslaught in that time into Christianity. And it took, uh, there's another, uh, historian, Philip Schaff, who similarly observed, he said, by taking in the whole population of the Roman Empire, the church became more or less a church of the world. And many heathen customs and usages under alleged names crept into the worship Of the Christian people. One of the greatest and most lasting influences that paganism had on the fourth century Christian church was the introduction of polytheistic ideas into its core doctrine of who God is. It was from the second century onwards that converts from Christianity came almost exclusively from polytheistic backgrounds. It's no longer Jews that are being converted. Now it's almost all polytheistic people exclusively, Gentiles, that are coming into the church. And they were already accustomed to thinking of this plurality of gods. And here they are. This polytheistic thought began to emerge in their idea or their conception of who is God. Who is this God? And we have Greek philosophers, these or these philosophers of the day, uh, like Tertullian region arius these really famous philosophers of the day and and thinkers of, of even of re- religious thoughts that they began to try to mesh christian beliefs with greek and roman beliefs in order to make this religion palatable to these believer or these unbelievers who they were trying to convert and because most of the new converts to Christianity were coming from a background of polytheism, they themselves readily accepted these new doctrines that region and Tertullian, Arius, began to, began to put out there, these doctrines. Tertullian is one who he, he wrote, he has, he has a lot of writing, he's a pseudo-Christian um, philosopher, I say pseudo-Christian because he's writing a lot and it became part of the Christian tradition, but it is not, it is not lined up to what we read in, in the scripture that we see from, from God or see that the apostles doctrine is based off of. And so here we are. We get into this, this place where the doctrine of the church was heavily influenced by a polytheistic understanding of who gods are. And then we see, I just, I just want to pause on our on our discussion here of this historical timeline um, and just show you this model that they came up with here. This model, this doctrine, Trinitarian doctrine. Um but if we have that model. Here we go. The Trinitarian doctrine. This is uh this was developed. It was over a A period of of a few years, but uh, it was particularly in the the council of Nicaea that took place in in, um, the city of Nicaea, Uh, this council, this gathering of the the church leaders. And uh, as they came together discussing uh, this understanding of who is God or what is the nature of God, uh, they came up with this understanding here, which would be the basis of the Trinitarian doctrine. And you see here uh, the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. And so uh, you have this understanding where God, what it's saying is that there are three uh, distinct persons who are co-equal and they're co-eternal. That from the beginning of creation, you always had the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that were speaking to each other. And that when the worlds were created, they conferred amongst each other, and they created the worlds. They created the world. That throughout time, you see these three um, that were, were in heaven, that they are co-equal, they're co-eternal, so they've always been there. That Father, the Father was always there, that the Son was always there, but there came a time when the sun came down, and you know that sun by Jesus, by the name of Jesus Christ, and that the sun he dwelt among us, and that he was here. Uh, but at that, at that same time, you have the Father in heaven, you have the Holy Spirit that would descend, and uh, at, at times um, you have you have Jesus who would pray, the Son would pray to the Father. Um, you have the Holy Spirit that would lead and guide him, and that all of these are three distinct persons. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, they would say all three of these are God, and that all three of these are, um, are this one God. And as I study this doctrine of the Trinity, um, my mind gets really bent because it's very confusing. And in fact, almost every time that I am reading or watching some, some video that's trying to explain it or reading something, uh, a lot of times, the pretext of that says, "Now we can't fully explain this because uh, we don't have a full understanding. Uh, nobody can really understand fully this God's being, uh, this trini- this Trinity, this God." Uh, that's that's kind of the the, ex- the the forethought before they dive into trying to explain the trin- Trinitarian doctrine. And uh, what I can say is this at that time. Became the doctrine or the understanding of the church of that day. It became part of the creed that the church would take on. The Catholic Church uh, was Catholic Church. Catholic really just means universal. It was the predominant church of the day. They they um, taught this. I mean, this was the the the, the doctrine that uh, would stand. That everybody, if you did not believe this from that day forwards, then you were. Uh, persecuted. Uh, you have men, women who were burned at the stake for not believing this. You have Justin, uh, the martyr. He did not believe in this. He's just one example of somebody who who uh, came against this doctrine that was being taught. And because of that, he was burned at the stake because he did not. He said, this is not right. This is not biblical. Uh, this is not what we read from scripture about who God is. It does not speak of three distinct persons uh, that are in the Godhead. There is not a co-eternal, co-equal God. Um, God is not three. God is one. God is one. So here's I, I know I'm I'm tonight it sounds like a big history lesson. And that's not typically what I like to do, but I'm gonna. The rest of this, we're gonna just dive into scripture. We only have, uh, about fifteen fifteen minutes left, but we're just gonna dive into stri- scripture to have an understanding of of what this is. So this is this is where the church today, the Christian church today, holds to this understanding of who God is. This trin- Trinity. That is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what does Scripture say? What does the Word of God reveal to us? Uh, there is a, another understanding that we have. If there's if you can put that other uh slide up here, uh of the this this doctrine, this the oneness of God. When you look at the oneness of God, going back to the Shema hero, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That here is that doesn't mean that He's the only Lord, but that He Himself is. Is one? You see that big white circle around there? That is God. That God is one. That He is not separated into distinct persons. There was there was not three people on the throne. There has never been three people on the throne. Uh, That from the beginning it was not three gods speaking to each other in order to confer amongst themselves about the creation of all things. Uh, At the end of time, we don't see. Uh, three that are sitting on the throne, you see one that's on the throne. There is only one God. You don't have, uh, when, when you, don't know, better not dive into those. There's, uh, there, there's scriptures that you may see, like uh, like you see Jesus was sitting at the right hand of God. That's talking about the power and the authority of God. The right hand is significant of power and authority. It's not three that are sitting there on the throne. It's one that was on the throne. Read about it in the book of Revelation. You see one that's on the throne. But out of that one God, you do see God manifest himself in different ways. You have him as the father in creation, that he is the father that reveals himself in that sense as the father, that he created things. He's the one who originates things. You have uh, you have him even as the one who would, um, who would be the father that, uh, that origin, or that, that would come down and manifest himself then in the flesh. And you see, uh, him doing that and manifesting himself as the son of God. Son of God. Now, son of, uh, speaking of the likeness of God, uh, Jesus Christ having the, being the manifestation or God in flesh and God manifested himself in that way in Jesus Christ. And he became the son in redemption that we today would be redeemed because of God manifesting himself in that way. And you have the Holy Spirit in salvation that God would manifest himself in that sense. This um, we have it up here listed as oneness doctrine. You may also hear this as uh uh, as modalism is, is another term that there are different a, uh, modes in which God three modes or aspects of God 's that are not distinct um, and coexisting persons in the divine nature of God, uh, but uh, one very important thing that I want to mention is, is that the Son of God Jesus Christ, the scripture tells us very clearly that he is the only begotten Son. The only begotten Son. He has a beginning. That the Son, that that mode of God revealing Himself came at a specific time. It, didn't, it was not Jesus of the Old Testament. You, you, didn't, have, you didn't have the Son of the, old, of the Old Testament. You didn't have three that were always there and one of them came down. No, you have God who came down and revealed himself as the Son. You have God who came and revealed Himself, and you have then the Son at that time. So let's let's dive into these scriptures uh, quickly as we wrap up here in uh, these, these next uh, 10, 15 minutes. The real problem isn't with history, it's with the Bible. The Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. It doesn't associate three or persons with an understanding of who God is. No passage says that God is a holy two, that God is a holy three, there's a holy trinity. But there are 50 verses, at least, that call God the holy one. The holy one. Isaiah chapter 47, verse 4. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. David prophetically spoke of Jesus Christ using the term Holy One. And his prophecy was quoted and confirmed by Peter in the book of Acts. And by Paul in the book of Acts chapter 13. David said in Psalm chapter 16. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. During Jesus' earthly ministry, even the demons recognized that he was the one true God manifested flesh. You see, in Mark chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, it says that there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. They recognize Jesus Christ as being God Himself. That during Jesus' earthly ministry, here He was on earth in flesh, but He was also, just as much as He was human flesh, He was God. He was 100% God. And we could, that's a whole other Bible study, but we could look at the dual nature of Jesus Christ, that He was both God and And man, Paul, he lets us know that the Jesus we serve today is the same God who created everything and that exists in the beginning. It's the book of Colossians. If you want a a book, uh, just one one book uh, that that really dives into the oneness of God, Colossians is a great book that you you should read. And it's uh, just this passage here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 14 through 19 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him, okay, what are we talking about? It says the image of the invisible God, firstborn of every creature. We're talking about Jesus. He was the image of the invisible God. It says, by Him were all things created. Everything that's in heaven, everything that's in earth, visible and invisible, Whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things. By Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. That God manifested himself in flesh in Jesus Christ and that he was the God who created heavens, the heavens and the earth. That God is the one, that Jesus is the one that is 100% God, that he is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And Jesus Christ dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead. So when the Bible calls our Savior Emmanuel, when you read that passage that's speaking of Him, we often recite that around Christmas time. That means Emmanuel means God with us, and it means exactly what it says: God with us. And that's the beauty of this oneness message: that God, He didn't send somebody else to die for our sins. God didn't send somebody else to die for our sins. God robed himself in flesh, came himself, and died for our sins. That, to me, is really the beauty of this understanding and the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God in Christ, that it wasn't God sending somebody else. It wasn't God saying, grieving because there is somebody else, his son, that was dying. Yes, Jesus often is referred to as the son of God. And yes, he was the son of God. He was the likeness of God. We don't have time to dive into all of the understanding of, of exactly what the son of God means. But that term son of is speaking of it has the likeness of or it has the um, uh, that is the essence of who God is. It is the revelation of God. He is the Son of God. And so we never we never see in Scripture where it talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But we do see God who is the Father in creation, the Son in redemption, the Holy Spirit in salvation, and these three are one. That, yes, we do see these three terms, but don't get them confused as three different beings. That these three are the same God. They're speaking of one. Uh, Isaiah, we get, a, uh, we get a prophecy here. Again, often spoken of or recited around Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Oh, what's this next one? The Mighty God. The everlasting Father. Wait a minute. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. That Jesus Christ, the one who would be born, the Son, is the mighty God, and he is the everlasting Father. First Timothy 2 5 says, For there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus, or the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. Peter, he got the revelation of who Jesus was. Matthew 16, Simon Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that, uh, it, it wasn't peter that the church was built on it was that revelation of what peter was saying about who jesus christ was that was the rock that was the foundation of the church that statement thou art the christ first Timothy 316 without controversy great is the mystery of godliness god was manifest in the flesh he was justified in the spirit seen of angels preached to the gentiles believed on in the world received up into glory wish i had time to dive Really dive into that scripture. But I do want to clear up uh, the erroneous thought that we are a Jesus-only church. Meaning that we do not believe that God exists as the Father and as the Holy Spirit. We are not a Jesus-only church. I would say that we are a jesus name church or a Jesus-everything church. Uh, we, We don't deny the Father and the Holy Spirit. We just understand that God is one God is one. The Bible teaches us that there is one throne in heaven. That there is only one that sits on the throne. And his name is Jesus. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22 and 23. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth and righteousness shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. So this, Old Testament, Isaiah speaking this. One God, nobody else gets the glory, but then we read in Philippians chapter two, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the God of, or to the glory of God the Father. Both of these passages cannot be true unless Jesus is God. There's some other verses for your study on this matter. Um, I'm not going to get to those tonight. But in John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, Acts 4, 12, Acts 10, 43, uh, all of these are addressing um, that Father, that Father is revealed in Jesus Christ, that name, Jesus Christ, that the Old Testament name that is revealed to Moses Yahweh or YHWH. We don't really even know how to say it, but that uh, tetragrammaton—that's that was written down. uh, YHWH. That name uh, we see then uh, either Yahweh, Jehovah is how we typically say it in the English, and and those that name is is Jesus is that name revealed to us as God. Our Savior. Jesus is the revelation of who God is. You see them all throughout the Old Testament searching for the name of God, the one saving name of God, and it is revealed as Jesus Christ. And so, here tonight, it may sound, it may sound like, uh, um, I'm being, um, or drawing a line in the sand, and that's because I, I really am tonight, that there is Uh, there really is something that is, there, this really is something that we ought to, uh, understand and not be confused about of who God is. I am drawing a line in the sand about this understanding of the, of God is not three. That God is not a multiplicity of gods. That church tradition that's been passed down from by century over century. And you have people who have taught this for generations. There also has been a remnant of people who have always held to Jesus name baptism. And this is why it really matters. This is why it really matters is because baptism has been affected by this false doctrine. That's why it matters. There's probably, there's probably some other reasons we could say why it matters, but when an essential, an essential portion of salvation doctrine, of, of what, it, what it means to be saved in the New Testament church, has been affected by this doctrine, it matters. Because Scripture tells us to be baptized in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we see in Scripture that people are baptized, and yet... The Catholic Church, you can read, you can read in their history books, you can read in their, uh, in their encyclopedias. I, I could give you a whole list of, uh, not just theirs, but a whole list of things that will say the Catholic Church takes credit for changing the baptismal formula. That they changed it from being in Jesus' name to being baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They changed that. And, It matters. It matters because there is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one name, only one way that we see people being baptized in Scripture. Let's just go ahead uh, as as we wrap up, let's read these uh, four passages here. Uh, Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When you are baptized into Christ, you put him on. His nature comes on you. The real danger here is that if we have a false baptism, we end up with a false salvation. Now, baptism is not an option. There's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian who has not been baptized. The Bible says that there is only one baptism. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Every baptism in the Bible, as I said, is done in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to list them all here. Um, I could give them to you, though. But it's in Acts 4.12. It says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So Here we are tonight, and we are a oneness church in doctrine, but I'll just leave it uh, with this. It's not really part of our notes, but we also ought to be a oneness church in practice. Just like you can hardly tell where the Father begins, the Son starts, the Son ends, the Holy Spirit, they're all one. The same ought to be true with the church, that we are the body of Christ. We ought to be one, one body, the Lord's Prayer, um, the Lord's Prayer. It's not found in Matthew six, uh, or uh, that, that's, that's really it's the disciples' prayer. That the Lord's Prayer um, is when Jesus prays in John chapter seventeen. He says that they all may be one. That they all may be one, as Thou Father art in me, and I in Thee. That they may, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Amen. That they all may be one. I can hear my mind right now. I'm not even going to try it at all, but I can hear Elder David singing singing the song right now. And there's only a few in here who know who that is. But Elder David Rao. That they all may be one. Amen. The old the old hymn that they all would come together. Amen. There is one name. There's one name, and I'm thankful tonight for the revelation of who God is. I don't do this tonight uh, uh, to to say or for, for any sense of pride. Uh, I, I just want to hold on to who Jesus Christ is. And this is an essentiality, a foundation stone that we must stand on. And as I said, there may be things here tonight that as I teach, uh, you say, man, that does not sound right to me. This is not what I've been taught. This is all." New territory for me, I would hope that you would have an open mind that you would study the scripture for yourself and uh, and if needed let's let 's have a conversation let's let 's open the word of God and let 's study it together. Um, God bless you tonight so let's let 's go ahead i wanna, I want to stand up i know it 's uh, past time already, but let 's go ahead it 's always a good time to end in prayer uh, this, These Bible studies, uh, as we 're going through this, are not necessarily drive you to the altar, uh, but I believe that uh, that the Word of God can be cemented in us. As we lift up our hands and we just acknowledge Him here tonight. So let's do so. In Jesus name, Lord, we come to you. Lord, we thank you. God, that your words is forever settled in heaven. Lord, and I pray that tonight, God, that we wouldn't try to twist it. We wouldn't try to, uh, to bend it to our own will or our own desire. But Lord, that your word would just be made plain to us. God, and that we would allow it to change us and to move us. Lord, I pray that uh, tonight, Lord, that your words God is is it's uh, convicting our heart, God, or is that as it is being settled in our heart, God, that you would um allow the revelation of who you are to come uh Lord to come to pass, Lord, so that we could be changed by you, God, and through you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Let's go, let's be the church everywhere that you are this week. Amen. Let's bless those around you. In Jesus' name.